Welcome to the Reptiles and Research podcast. Today's episode is with our guest, Paul Burrows. Paul is a varana keeper here in the UK. He's actually very local to me, Nelly. He's one of our few guests that I've actually met in person. This conversation was probably one of my favourite conversations we've had with a guest. We get deep into philosophy, what reptile keeping means to you, the philosophies of a varana keeper, the importance of enrichment. There's a really, really deep dive here into the mentality behind why we keep and how we think about things. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to offer support, you can head over to Patreon slash Reptiles and Research. With that out of the way, let's get on with today's episode. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Paul. Obviously, what you're doing is Varanids, and I think people will be really excited about this. Could you just go into a little bit about who you are and what it is that you keep and do? Yeah, so I'm um, Paul Burrows. I'm a UK keeper based in Sus- well, Surrey now. Um, yeah, and I keep a multitude of monitor lizards. So I have green tree monitors, mangrove monitor, beach rope monitors, um, black-headed monitors or freckled monitors, Phronus tristus. Um, I have boss monitor, hacking monitors, Timor monitors, um, a bit of dragon, a corn snake, a few inverts. I've kept a multitude of different other species, but just on the monitor theme, I've kept Kimberleys, I've kept Pilbaras, I've kept um, Dorianus, the blue tail monitors. Um, I think that's about it, really. So I just work with monitors, um, hopefully trying to breed monitors in a few years, building up my projects now, but mainly just pushing husbandry for Varanids, to be honest. So what is it you feel that draws you towards Varanids then? I, I don't know. It's the same old thing, isn't it? it I, everyone goes to Steve Owen, but obviously he was the crocodile hunter, but you saw him like chasing lace and parentes and bits and bobs. Um, I kept started keeping reptiles when I was properly when I was 17 or 18. I'm 28 now. So for about 20, 10 years. Um, and I had a, I did what everyone did. I got, oh, this looks cool. I'll buy that. This looks cool. I'll buy that. This, and I had like a, an eclectic collection. Um, I don't condone it, but I feel like every keeper goes through it. And then I got divorced, had to pretty much sell all my animals. And then when I moved back out, I was like, right, I want reptiles again because I just have this affinity to them. And then I thought to myself, well, what's my favorite? Because I don't want to get loads again. What's my favorite? And I really fought hard about it. And I just kept coming back to monitors. And I loved monitors since I was like seven, seeing a green tree monitor in Reptile Magazine. So I moved back out and I started getting into monitors. And again, the snowball just rolls. and. I'm like, right, I'll get this species and get that species. And I've sort of worked out four species where I want to be. So I'm just going to narrow in on those four species. Um, but I think it's just the intelligence level of them. It's just there's something different about a Varanid when you interact with it. It's almost mammalian in the sense of how they interact. So they're almost not bashing on other reptiles, but they're almost that level above. In terms of intelligence, I definitely feel they are. I used to work for the World Parrot Trust, and you could look into the parrot's eyes, and like they look at you in a certain way. And I see that in like our croc monitors and stuff. I just see the same switched onness in their eyes. So it definitely, it definitely is like in a different category. So if you got the four things that you're looking to like narrow down to, what four species was that? Um, so Varanus indicus, <clears throat> excuse me, Varanus indicus being my favourite, so the mangrove monitor. Um, Varanus Prasinus, so the green tree monitor, being my second favourite. Varanus Tristus, the black-headed monitor, or the freckled monitor. We, There's an argument what we have in the UK, whether we have Tristus Tristus or Tristus Orientalis, but um, so those. 
I'm always going to have a pair of Ackies, but they're not my fourth. The fourth species will be Varanus jobiensis, so the peach throat monitor. So you say that you're obviously you're pushing for Varanid husbandry. What would you say that is one of the main things lacking in monitor lizard husbandry at the moment? Um, the first thing that comes into my head is UVB, because not so much in the UK or Europe, but obviously America is a big demographic of um, people keeping Varanids. And they all say that they don't need UVB, especially for the bigger ones like the Asian water monitors, the crop monitors, the um, black throat monitors, white throat monitors, even bosk monitors, because they can be fed such a high rich calcium diet. Um, so they're like, no, no, they don't need it. So I'd say lighting is definitely up there. Enclosure sizes is definitely up there. Um, and in the sense of just... <laughs> It's hard because if you look on my Instagram, it's just me like target training my mangrove monitor. But I feel like everyone needs a shoulder dragon, which I don't agree with. I feel like if you're keeping varanids, you're not keeping a species that you want to get out every day and actually fully interact with in the sense of them being puppy dog tame. Um, I don't personally think that's a benefit. Being able to interact with your animal, of course, is a benefit, one, for health checks and two, for enrichment. But everyone seems to want the cuddliest tree monitor in the world um and i think people put that at the forefront of husbandry that they have to be this tame animal whereas for me the forefront needs to be naturalistic enrichment um obviously in health and stuff like that and then if they want to be social then great but half well other than my two ackies everything in my room will bite me so and that's how they should be monitors should be highly strung they should be fast they should be not aggressive but they definitely should be wary and defensive and not afraid to bite in the sense of that's just the way that they are in the wild so i don't want to remove that from them if i don't have to i think a lot of the ones that are classed as tamed are just undercharged i've never seen a tame with bracket tame um monitor lizard that had appropriate care and like you say it's in their nature they are an apex predator so yeah it completely makes sense yeah no i 100 agree with that a lot of people message me on mangrove monitors and i'm trying to target train mine at the moment purely because she's just so food aggressive um i can't clean her enclosure i can't water her enclosure without her trying to kill me so i'm trying to target train her now just to break um basically the food response but everyone messages because i haven't been on social media all that long i started social media purely because i wanted to try and put a little bit of good husbandry for monitors or good advice and learn for myself good advice so people message me about mangroves so like oh I, my mangrove berries all the time or my mangrove bites me or my mangroves really flighty and when i respond i'm never rude to people because if you attack people they're never going to listen but i always respond going well why do you care like is it eating is it healthy and then they're like, oh, well, well it may, like, it's just for some reason people just want, and I 100% agree because if your monitor's lethargic or not defensive, then it's probably not hot enough or, and or it's overweight. There's a combination of the both or one of, yeah, I agree. And then being overweight compounds the issue of not being hot enough because you've got that back fat that blocks the infrared passing through there. The back is just it's a, it's a cycle. It just spirals the fatter it gets and the the less energy it gets. I think that's one of the things you see in the US. You see a lot of these like big social media stars talking about oh yeah the they're the these experts in socialising these runners. Now I bet there is a degree of truth to that, but I reckon a large part of it probably is just 
they are fat and under energized as well. Oh yeah, 100% agree. And it's, don't get me wrong, like Salvatore the Water Monitor is tamer than mangrove monitors and they're just naturally more calm. Um, like you can go to a place called Lapini Park in Thailand where they roam around like squirrels and they just seem to have no fear of people and same as certain picnic areas in Australia where lace monitors will just come up to people and they will like almost beg for food. So there are monitors that are more tolerant to it but you see these people that have like salvadori the croc monitors and they posting on their shoulder just for an instagram picture and i think to myself like like is there really not a lot else going on in your life that you need to get likes to have a and like i say it i don't want to be a hypocrite because i do handle my monitors but i also try and push the meaning that like this isn't a normal i don't i have always said on my social media that i want to share the highs and the lows I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, look at my animals. I also want to say I'm doing it for this reason or this has happened for this. Or like I say, the only reason I'm target training my mangrove is only to benefit me in the sense of I can be a better keeper because I don't have to put her in a box every time I want to do stuff in her enclosure. So that's the reason it benefits her to benefit me rather than I've got a tame mangrove that I don't care about stuff like that. Yeah, from seeing when working with the croc monitors, there's no way I would ever put that over my shoulder. Like, that's one way to lose your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, they've got gnarly claws and gnarly teeth. It's not it's not worth it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's close calls now and again, but for the most part, like, it's just better off to be hands-off and things like that. Yeah, no, I'm very, um, very jealous of where you work and what you get to work with. I mean, I've got a room filled with them, but having those two Salvadori that you have and the babies and the free Salvadori that you have is um pretty incredible. Yeah, it is enjoyable at times, yeah. The one thing that I uh, wanted to go into also is uh, doing things on the animal's terms and when it is choice-based rather than forced. And I feel like a lot of people, there's this misconception of, oh, to, to tame something down, you force yourself upon it and just make it get used to handling and what you're actually doing is like flooding the animal until it goes into this like state of just like learned helplessness just stops and I think oh that's it calming down when actually it's got to a certain breaking point of stress it's just stopped and uh, I feel like that is a massive thing in the industry where everyone's like oh yeah just handle as much as you can and eventually handle 15 minutes a day or get used to it when actually you're causing like the opposite problem you don't realise how much focus and obviously in conversations you're having online, how much you're pushing, how much you focus on this choice-based handling? 100%. I am 100% on the monitor's terms. Um, I always lead by saying to people, like, I didn't buy a mangrove monitor to be able to have a, an animal that I can handle. Um, if you do want a varanid for handling, and that's your sole reason for wanting a varanid, I don't think you should get a varanid. Um, but yeah, like I say, I'm trying to target train mango in my mangrove purely so... I can lure her to a secure area rather than having to forcefully grab her because I agree with you. There will come a day where she will just break mentally and she'll be like, Do you know what? I can't deal with this anymore. I'm just going to let this beast manhandle me. Um, and like, like I say, other than my two Ackies, I don't handle any. I might have some come onto my arm luring with food, but even then that's like my baby tree monitor. She's three months old and I literally lure her with food the second she touches my finger 
because she'll smell my hand. It's a different smell, a different texture. Second, she touches my finger, I'll give her the food. I don't make her come right up into my arm. I just want her to know that I'm not scary. My smell is fine. And when I first got her, she was more than happy to run around on me, but I haven't got her out since. And people have said to me, well, why don't you just get her out? Because she's clearly okay. I'm like, well, I don't want to, because that's not why I brought her. I brought her to set up a naturalistic enclosure and sort of observe the behavior that I may never see with my own eyes in the wild. And if she does one day want to come out for food and food only not get her out to play with, then great. But if she doesn't, that's not why I brought her. How much, let me, there's a voice crack right there. Let me redo that one. So how much, obviously, obviously being such an intelligent group of animals, how much of your focus comes down to enrichment? So every week without fail, there's not a set day, but every week without fail, I'll rearrange the enclosure, whether that literally is just add leaf litter, whether that's completely turn the soil, whether that's adding some new branches, whether that's adding a new rock, whether that's taking the same species, um, a log from my male Tristus's enclosure and putting it into my females or vice versa. At least once a week, I'm doing something like that. And then I, I'm quite getting really into scent trailing. Um, so terra locust or terra dubia in half and dot the scent all around the enclosure and then hide it under a rock. Just silly stuff like that. Um, not feed them for a few days, do that, and then just sit and watch them climb around the entire enclosure, just finding scent. But if you have a monitor lizard in a four by two by two, let's just say an Aki, because that's the common. If you have an Aki in a four by two by two, you've got three or four cork tubes, a rock and some sand. Within two weeks, that lizard's going to be bored out of its brain. And people are like, well, my Aki, when I first got it, it was running around, it was digging, it was climbing, it was investigating. And now it's not doing anything. And I just say to them, it's because it knows every inch of that enclosure now. It doesn't need to. Like, it knows you're bringing it food Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It knows that you change the water every day. It knows that you come in and pick poo twice a week. It, like, they're, they're generally that intelligent and they know your, what you're going to do before you even do it. Like, my lizards will start pacing when I take my cockroach tub off the top because it makes a certain noise. And they'll all just be still. And as soon as it, that noise, that rustle, they all start pacing because they know instantly, okay, this is feeding time. And then sometimes I don't feed a set one. And then you can see it running around the enclosure and going around the enclosure because it's like, well, where's my food? And you can see their brains whirring. But if you've just got one or even multitudes, but you do the same thing every single day, they'll just be bored in the sense of a routine. Your routine, like I don't have a routine. They don't get fed x dates every single species is seasoned depending if they're indonesian or australian they have a hot and dry or a wet and um hot and cold and a wet and dry and they'll have nighttime drops in the dry season and they'll have like nighttime spikes in the wet season and they'll get sprayed every single day in the wet season they'll get sprayed twice a week in the dry season they'll get less food in the cold period they'll get like i just mix it up constantly just purely so they don't know what's coming next I think a lack of routine is is, uh, is definitely one that a lot of keepers are starting to realise now. I mean, routine is good. Obviously, don't get me wrong, you've got like beginner keepers who have to have a regimented routine or they freak out and feel like they can't do it. So there's a place for it, but I feel like once you get past that stage, 
no one's actually going like, oh, it has to be Thursday, I feed this snake this, or I have to feed things on a Thursday, like, mix it up. I think as well, because um, where I work, we're doing a lot of training to reduce stress in keeping animals in small enclosures because it's rescue work. And in domestics, routine is key. That's what reduces stress. So I think it's kind of been transferred over into the exotic world that this is how we do it. Because if we have sets, then animals make it predictable. But we're forgetting they're not domestic animals, they're actually exotic animals. So treating them differently makes sense. Yeah. And like my mangrove monitor realistically she's wild caught she's captive farm she's from the wild um no one breeds them same as my peach right same as my bosque monitor same as probably one of my tree monitors um unless your monitor's australian or you generally have met the breeder the chances are it's from the wild because not many people breed them in the uk so it's even more important to replicate seasons and not have routines just because if you imagine, I say to people, like, imagine if I took you from your nice warm home, I threw you outside or even into a dark box, let's just say. And then I only brought you food every Wednesday. You'd live for Wednesday. Like that's, that's all you've got. All you've got is that food that comes on Wednesday, but you're going to be so depressed. Like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's, and that is exactly how the monitor lizards are. Like you can tell, like I'll be first person to put my hands up. I've forgotten to mix the enclosure up for a few weeks and i can notice my lizards just getting lazy and i'm like oh my god I'm, so, I'm sorry and then like revamp the whole enclosure and they're back to being monitors again so like i've seen it myself what being a bad keeper will do for a varanid they just become they will just sit they won't chase food they'll just get lazy um so it's even more important i don't want to like say bearded dragons because i think bearded dragons should get the same optimal care as a varanid but it's not like putting a bearded dragon in a four by two by two putting an aki in a four by two by two because if you keep your bearded dragon right don't get me wrong they'll be highly active looking for food as well but more so with that aki you'll notice it being a lot more lazy and a lot more lethargic a lot quicker just from basic forgetting to feed it basic forgetting to change the enclosure so yeah i, I do agree with that I mean, there is a massive difference in the ecology of both species as well. The bearded dragons, they'll sit up on a perch. They'll be, like, basking, looking around from this vantage point. They'll see, like, a bug crinkles forward. They'll go down and get it, eat like eat that, hop back up again and sit there again. They aren't, like, cruising around, like, turfing through things. They aren't the same level of activity as, a, as like, a lot of, like, monitor lizards. It's a whole other kettle of fish and I think a lot of people just think oh it's a lizard in the four foot, it's the same it's completely different. Yeah no I couldn't, I couldn't have put it about myself that's, that's exactly right. The ecology monitors are called monitors because they monitor they, I don't know the exact figures but like they travel miles sometimes like Komodo's completely different because the largest lizard in the world but they literally swim from island to island to find food and like I'm sure like my mangrove monitor would be, she's part of the island complex monitors that are parthenogenic and they're only parthenogenic because they end up on islands. Well, this is the theory that they end up on islands where they can repopulate themselves because there is no other lizard there. But people say they get there through storms, but they can get there just because they get lost out in sea because they're just too busy exploring stuff. And then they wind up on this random island. So yeah, in the wild, your bearded dragon is just going to sit there. Whereas your Aki monitor is just going to go, right, today started let's just run around and go crazy so yeah i think the the actual 
space territory size of a wild bearded dragon was like eighty square meters. So you compare you compare that to like Varanid, there's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. They they I don't imagine well, to my understanding of it, Aki's have a territory of a group set of um say like a rock outcrop and that will be theirs, but there'll be a family group setting of multiple males and multiple females, one of the only true social Varanids. But yeah, they'll just wander around every single inch of their territory all the time, just constantly looking for food. And if they can't find any, they're, they're going to expand and they're going to keep looking and they're going to keep going until eventually they find what they're after and they might not even return to the old territory because it's no good for them. So they're just going to keep going and going and going and going. I think one of the big things with a lot of like monitors as well is like people underappreciate substrate depth as well. There's a lot of species where like a human microclimate underneath like a drier top layer is huge for like Aki's in particular and bosks. A lot of people just have them like a little substrate lip like this sort of like size, which is what like three inches, and I think that's enough. It's not. I mean, like, there are keepers that there are monitor keepers that like say that like two feet is like the minimum for an Aki, and I can't say I've done that for anything, but. It's definitely a, a consideration that a lot of monitor keepers don't appreciate, I think. Yeah, it's, um, I'll be honest, in my mangrove, um, my Aki's, I'm just trying to think now, my peach throat, but that's about it in the sense of quote-unquote deep substrate. My mangrove has probably 10 inches in her enclosure, then she's got a nest box, just looking at it now. It's probably four foot long, two and a half foot wide, maybe two foot tall, and that's completely packed. And she's laid three clutches of eggs for me this year, so she's clearly happy. But it's the nesting for varanids that's important for substrate depth, 100% as well for microclimates, because if it's too hot in your enclosure or the wild, they do dig down or they do find under a log where it is humid or to aid shedding or to be able to rehydrate themselves. But if a female varanid, which will lay eggs without a male or not, if she can't find a suitable nesting spot, she will become egg bound. She won't, if you're lucky, she'll scatter, but the reality is she'll become egg bound and she'll die. So it's not even the deep substrate. It's the deep heated substrate, which is important because if it's just dirt in the bottom of the enclosure, one, it's cold, especially if your enclosure is on the floor. And two, when you spray it, the, the substrate just gets sodden. That soaks down all the bottom, just harbors bacteria. If your monitor does end up down there, it's probably going to die anyway. And if it does dig all through it whilst gravid, it's just going to get exhausted trying to find a spot to lay and then literally just die of egg-bound exhaustion. So yeah, substrate depth as well as heated substrate depth, for especially for females, but also males for enrichment, is yeah, it's definitely up there on top priorities with runners. So let's go into the bosks a bit because they're I think they're one of the main monitors that especially in the US, a lot of people have, and I don't know necessarily if the husbandry is really there yet. Obviously, the big elephant in the room is the diet of a boss monitor. A lot of people are feeling this really heavy rodent prey. What are you feeding your boss's diet? So my boss gets... So he gets locusts as a pretty much a staple. He gets roaches, um, hisses, dubias, and discords. Um, he gets earthworms, he gets morio worms, he gets um, pactinota grubs, he gets stick insects, he gets um, 
a little bit of egg, depending on what time of the year it is. And then maybe once every couple of months, I'll give him some hairless rodent in the sense of he'll get one wrap up. Um, but yeah, they're 99% insectivorous. I used to have a boss back before I started keeping again, who was a year and a half old, four and a half foot long. And he was fed 100% insects. So people that say that they're, they don't thrive on that, then I've got pictures and videos of a beastly male that can prove you different. So, yeah. How off, uh, how, how do you feel that... Yeah, let me think how I want to re-ask this question. What do you feel is the main driving factor to this misinformation between what keepers are actually doing and what is the reality of their wild diet? I honestly think it's laziness. Um, to correctly feed my boss monitor, let me just try and think about this because I breed roaches, so it's hard. But my boss monitor probably goes through 15 to 20 boxes of live food a week, probably, when it's the hot season, if you like, when he's summer for them. In the winter, I feed them slightly less. But as a general, he's going through 10 to 20 boxes of live food a week. It's easier because I breed some, so it reduces the cost. But the reality is it's really expensive to feed a boss monitor correctly. And I might throw 40 locusts in and that would be him for the week if I'm feeding that way. And then the week after I might throw 10 in and then five days later I might throw 14 in. And then five days later he might, I might just put a load of earthworms in the enclosure and that will do him for a week or two, lets him forage. But it's not cheap, but if I fed him mice, I could feed him two jumbo mice a week and it would cost me, what, two pound? And that would literally be it. So I, I think it's laziness. I don't think, I think the problem is with people and keepers, again, it's a hot topic, but I think people, they just, I don't know how to word it without offending too many people. I mean, you're on the Reptiles and Research podcast. Just say it. I think I've offended everyone at this point. I think everyone just basically wants that glory trophy social media four-foot boss monitor. And the reality is to get them there fast is just to pound them with rodents and chicks. And then people just want an accolade to their name in the sense that look at me and look what I have. Um, same as the retic community. They just pound them and pound them and pound them and pound them. And the bigger they get and the fatter they get, the more prestigious it is. Whereas like my, my boss monitors, I don't know how old he is, but he's probably around a, a year old, 10 months old. It's probably about two and a half feet at this point. Um, and his back end just like sinks in and people are like, Oh my God, he's so skinny. And I'm like, well, watch this and open the door, put a locust the opposite end of my room, which is, I don't know, 20 foot long. And he just zooms across the floor. And everyone's like, well, I've never seen my boss move that fast. He's always too slipping over. And I was like, yes, yeah, because they're just obese. Like, this is how they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be these lean, active, climbing, like semi-fossorial, just monsters. Whereas yours has just been fed rodents twice a week. And it's just this. And I also think the fact that they're throwaway in the sense that they're $25 or £50, you can get a boss monitor. If it dies in six months, let's be honest, who cares? We'll just go and buy another one. And that's not the attitude, but I do think that's the attitude that people have. And they just, they don't see it as a life and they don't value it as a life. They see it as £50, which you'd go and spend in the pub. So they don't care. 
So, yeah, this is cool. Look at it. Kill this rat. Oh, yeah, it looks great. And then it dies. Fatty liver disease. Oh, we'll get another one. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, you can go on and bash people, but I think it's just laziness. I think that's the number one priority. People are just unwilling, one, to learn and two, to spend the money. It's just laziness. Yeah, I, f- I feel like the the financial aspect is probably a big, big variable. And obviously the fact that the actual animal isn't worth that much money either. I feel like if they were worth like two, three hundred pounds, suddenly people would see them as more worthwhile putting the money into feeding because they're going to get babies out of it. They're going to be able to sell and recoup that money. But when they're like not worth much at all, I feel like that's when things become that throwaway and whatnot and not much money goes into the pet when it's not worth if your setup and your care and everything far exceeds long past the actual value of the animal, I thought there's a lot of people that just give up on it. Yeah, and it's it's like my boss monitor. He has, so let me think about this. He has three hundred watt. I think one seventy five, but let's say three hundred watt for the story. Three hundred watt halogens. He has a three foot thirty nine watt, whatever they are. Um, 14% high output UVB. He has two six foot LEDs and one three foot LED. Um, and that's just the lighting rig alone. So again, that's it's not he's got more lighting than say three of my other enclosures combined. So that's especially in the economy crisis at the moment, that's ridiculous. Just for 40 bucks. He was actually given to me. I didn't even pay for him. Someone was going to just pretty much throw him away, literally. And I was like, oh, no, don't. I'll take him. I didn't really want him because I know how much they do need. But I was like, oh, okay, I'll have him. And now we're going really attached to him. And he's, he's great because they are great lizards if kept correctly. So, yeah, money is 100% a driving factor in why they get such a bad rap. So, talking about lighting then. Have you seen the difference between a monitor without overhead lighting and UV and bright visible light compared to being given it after? How, what difference are you seeing the animals that have had that change? So I can't comment on the UVB personally because I've always given UVB, but I can comment on LEDs because I never used to give LEDs, um, let's say a couple of years ago but all of my enclosures now and if they don't they will do soon i'm upgrading to all of them to have leds the colors for one um they're a lot more vibrant they're a lot more colorful the so when i first got a tree monitor so this was 2020 i had a just an led and a halogen and it would come out in the morning and it would bask and everything was fine, happy, healthy. And I added an LED on the opposite side of the enclosure. It would wake up, same sleeping spot, wake up and then go under the LED every single morning and then look around as if to be like, well, I'm not getting hot. Why am I not getting hot? Like, And then would like look around, flick its tongue a bit and then realize that it's actually not under the heat. Would go under the halogen, bask for half the time he normally would and then go back to the LED every single time. So I was like, okay, well, clearly something's going on here. So I moved the um, I moved the halogen next to the LED, but then didn't didn't move the UVB just to sort of see if he was looking for heat, UVB, or visible light. And then he did the same thing, went under the LED. Was like, okay, this is fine because he's clearly getting hot. And he was like, that's fine, I don't really care. And then obviously I know that ideally you don't want to make them choose between UVB and heat, so you always want them to be like 
together. So I that didn't last long, but I just wanted to rule it out in my own brain. So now they have an LED spot, a halogen spot, and then the UVB light through the middle. So that's what I run with now, um, pretty much on every single enclosure. My peach throat monitor was a wild caught baby. Um, when I first got it, it, and we're saying about sparsity as well. So when I first got it, I it wasn't sparse enclosure, but for my standards, it was a sparse enclosure because I just wanted to make sure it was eating, making sure it was pooing, just making sure it was healthy. And the animals just started going downhill really fast. And I was like, okay, what do I do now? So I put it against a lot of people's better judgment in a completely bioactive, naturalistic, fully decked out, live planted vivarium. I didn't see it for two and a half weeks at all. And when I saw it, its colors were immaculate. Its skin had like rehydrated it. It almost not doubled in size, but seemed like it doubled in size. Food was slowly disappearing, but I never saw it. So 100% something's in that naturalism, the true lighting, because it didn't have, it had UVB and it had halogen, <clears throat> but I didn't make it really, really bright because I didn't want to intimidate this animal that's just come from Batanta and been thrown in a box. But well, that was my biggest mistake because I was putting it into captivity and I was trying to make it symbolistic for myself and to the animal's detriment. Thankfully, it's still with me, but at 100% it went downhill. And I was listening to experienced keepers going, no, you need to make sure it's pooing because it's probably filled with parasites. You need to make sure it's eating. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I was messaging them going, it's, down, it's going downhill. Like it's, I can see its skin. It's becoming dehydrated. It's clearly dehydrated. It's becoming skinny. It's becoming more lethargic. And they're like, no, 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 you, this is, this is all normal. It will get through it. But I was like, nah, something doesn't sit right with me. So like I say, I put it in that enclosure and the animal, whether it was the lighting, whether it was the naturalism, but now it's pristine. The colors are amazing. The body tone, the muscle, you can see the muscle definition where it's got somewhere to swim, where it's got somewhere to climb. All the walls are climbable, which is always a must for varanids anyway. But I think the lighting and the naturalism tied in is the only way to go with varanids, in my opinion. I think there's something to be said there for Sometimes you have to make a decision where maybe you can't keep it in its really clinical, like lab type setup for quarantine. Sometimes naturalism is the way to establish it and rehydrate it and not stress it out and just let it be and let it calm down, let it establish. And then you can worry about treating for parasites later down the line. But I think the most important thing is just getting that animal comfortable and established and I feel like yes it's really important to have all of this you know parasites treated and quarantine stuff I'm not saying completely forego quarantine but if you can have that set up in a completely different area and then do it naturalistic with this wild caught animal and let that actually acclimate a lot better from that rather than a stressful barren enclosure I feel like if you're willing to just gut that out when you realize you have to and the money isn't really that much of an obstacle. I feel like sometimes that is a decision that is better, but it doesn't really go along with the rhetoric of what most say. I I appreciate the fact that like the hobby shovels down this quarantine and minimal when you first get it down people's throats. Without the context though, that sometimes to acclimate something wild caught, you need to keep it in this wild uh, naturalistic way 
And there's also something that Frank Payne said, wasn't it, Elliot, when he, we had him on the podcast last, that he uses this naturalistic way to acclimate his wild caught like carbon comedians and stuff. And he says he can't, he, could, he can't do it any other way. Yeah, it's it's a hard one because like I've always loved monitors and always wanted to be into monitors, but this, I mean, social media and Facebook's a toxic place for any reptile keeper anyway but when you go onto social media and you want to become a varanid keeper everyone just gets their pitchforks out and they go you're not ready you don't know what this is going to entail you don't and it they're not wrong they are a step up from a corn snake but if one you're financially stable two you have enough reason and resources and three you have time and you can give space energy and effort into an animal, then there's no reason you can't get around it. That's not me saying you've never kept a reptile before, go and get a croc monitor. But if you've never kept a reptile before and you're set on an Aki, you probably could get an Aki with time and experience learning from others. You don't have to just go and buy the Aki. But it's very off-putting when you've never kept an animal before. Like a lot of people in the UK have never really kept peach roads, at least not well. That's why we don't have any. So when I was reaching out to people, I was always reaching out to people in the States purely because no one on home soil has done it. Um, but obviously the States mentality is 40 gallon glass terrarium with nothing but a water bowl and a hide. And it just didn't sit right with me. And then I did hear stuff like Frank Payne and I believe I forget her name, but she was on Dylan's podcast and she's an importer. Um, but she imports... Ashley. Yeah, so she when she imports like quite rare, finicky, delicate snakes, she puts them straight into naturalism. And I sort of took that experience in that I've obviously learned few consuming. And I was like, maybe I'll try it with my peach rope because no one, I probably spoke to 20 people and the 20 people I spoke to, not a single person went, maybe just put it in a naturalistic enclosure. So I'm sort of glad that I, I'm on the other side of like herpticulture in the sense that I do prefer naturalism because I probably would have lost my peach throat based on what the hobby would tell you. So let's go into the peach throats a little bit then. They are a species. I got a chance to work with them when we had one at Grange and that was, I mean, let me say that, I don't want to say where I worked. <laughs> 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 Forgot myself there. <laughs> it's because I'm local and you you know me and you I you know I know the shops. Yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, we're just talking about this place. I'm like, wait, yeah. no, 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 wait, right. <laughs> Obviously, I I did have the chance to work with the peach rates and they are incredibly beautiful. Also, aren't too large as well. Although I don't feel like we really delved into like the nitty gritty, like advanced level of care. I think it was just about keeping it going really in the shop. Um, what would you say sets them apart from what's the next step up from them, say like a Bosque or a, or a Aki? Um, so do you mean like if you wanted to go for it, you've got an Aki at the moment and then you wanted a peach throat, do you think there's a middle ground? Yeah, like how, how difficult do you think they are to get into? Okay. Um, if I'm completely honest, that same fundamental, if you've got money, time, space and energy with a little bit of know-how, you probably can keep them. The only difference is the fact that an adult jobiensis will take your finger off, whereas an Aki will just make you bleed. So the animal demands a lot more respect because they are a four-ish foot 
razor sharp, highly intelligent velociraptor. Um, whereas an Aki is a bumbling idiot in comparison. Um, in sense of care, they're pretty simple as long as you know how to keep humidity. Um, people, when they think of ranas, they think heat them and feed them. Whereas my Jobiensis has a basking spot of 45, 48 degrees, but then the enclosure gets down to 24 degrees on the cold spot because they do seek out those cold microclimates, the same as the Indicus. So they're both part of the same family. They do need those colder areas. And that's quite hard to achieve because my room sits at 27 degrees, like when all the lights are on, it's 27 degrees. So trying to get enclosures to have 24, 25 degree areas is a bit tricky so that sort of stuff you need to learn so i i achieve that by having a corner with a semi-buried cork tube with some moss in it that i'll spray and that will create a cooler microclimate just silly stuff like that so if you can sort of master that and the the biggest thing as well is not being scared of them because mine's only a baby at the moment. It just tries to run away, but there will be a day it turns where it becomes a certain size and it goes, do you know what? I don't have predators of this size that you should be scared of me. And they will charge you like my mangrove. She's only three-ish foot, but she charges me and she, she won't, she's not scared to bite. She's so, and I need my hands for a living. I'm an electrician. So one bite is literally me out of work. So that's the main difference. And even the claws just, being touched by the claws you're bleeding like i'm covered in tattoos so i'm not like shy to a needle or pain but the mangrove i just know you can't i can't hold it without gloves just purely because it just hurts so much and you're it looks like you've got been attacked by 10 cats so that's the main difference i think so what's their diet like are they more like a like a rodent prey mixing with chicks or what's the situation well a lot of people will tell you they're highly avian, so they'll eat a lot of chicks and birds. I don't feed that. My baby gets 85% insects, so he'll get locusts, roaches, worms, um, grubs. Um, roaches are a bit hard because they just burrow, and because it's bioactive, they're just gone. So I have a little feeding cup, so it's not natural. But one, I know it's eating, and two, I know he's getting them. Locusts, I just let free roam, but they destroy the enclosure, so... Um, He'll also get prawns, crabs, fish, shrimp. Uh, my mangrove gets octopus, um, uh, lardons, or whatever they're called. Not lardons, that's bacon. Longsteens. She doesn't get bacon. She gets longsteens. Um, I haven't done it yet, but I'm planning on buying like a great big massive salmon and just do, pinning it down and doing a whole feed so she can like rip the carcass apart and that sort of stuff. Um, so depending what island they're from, because you're talking of an animal that's got seven eight nine ten even undescribed localities they're either mangrove dwelling so they're going to have high crab shrimp fish crustacean intake or they're inland where they're going to be 50 50 avian um bugs whereas i don't personally feed any of my varanids rodents other than the odd rat pup every now and then i don't like feeding hair just purely because you can see it in the feces, it clogs them up. Um, they don't poo as regularly when they've had rodents, it takes them longer to digest. It sits on them heavier. They're not as energetic when they've had rodents. And again, the hair and the poo, if you've got something like a Nile or a lace, 
it's a different story because they are going to be taking mammalian prey, whereas these guys might find carrion or they, they might get the odd mouse or rat. But you're talking once in a blue moon, so I try and stay away from rodents. So obviously you talk about like island localities and stuff. I'll be honest, I, I literally know nothing about the mangroves or the peach toads and whatnot. So can we go a little bit into like their natural history and whatnot? Which islands are they from and what parts of the world are they from? Yeah, I'm I'm not amazing. I'll go off what I know. I'm not amazing with it. So they're um they're obviously Indonesian. The they're found around and in Papua New Guinea. So like Sarong, uh where you go. Patanta. Um, the my mangroves classes are Solomon Island, but the Solomon Islands are obviously a big eclectic collection of islands. I couldn't tell you which exact islands, so they're just classes Solomon Islands. You've got Solomon Islands, you've got Indonesians, which again doesn't narrow it down, but that's just what the hobby labels them as. Um, you've got uh, the Wago locality, my Petros, Batanta. But if you look at the so the Indicus complex is basically the genus of mangrove monitors peach rope monitors quince monitors like blue town monitors all those island monitors are lumped into the indicus complex so they i couldn't tell you how many species i think there's like 15 or 16 species i did do a podcast on it but i forgot the number but there's like 15 or 16 species but out of those there's probably another 10 or 15 that are undescribed and or the same so there's one called the um, door indicus which is basically a monitor that looks like a hybrid between a mangrove monitor and a blue tail monitor but we still don't know like ecology still doesn't know if it's one species or a true hybrid because they do share the same habitat because there's not enough research done and depending on what paper you read people are constantly arguing back and forth so like if for example yellow ackies and red ackies are they the same species are they different species it's that similar stuff so mine same as the tree monitors i've got a maruki locality i've got a sarong locality you can also get um what are they called it'll come back to me i forgot now but there's like four localities in the hobby of just green tree monitors whereas blue tree monitors are only just from batanta whereas the green trees are from different islands the mangrove monitors are different islands but also with locality comes different patterning different sizes the solomon island are between two and three foot for females three and four foot for males whereas indonesian mangrove monitors females will get four to five foot and males get five to six foot so buying they go for an octogenic color change so when you buy them they're just black with spots and then they start to grow and develop. So buying just a mangrove monitor, you don't know if you're going to get a two-foot or a six-foot lizard unless the importer slash shop can tell you sort of where it comes from. So, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to learn with it, and I'm still learning it myself. I know more about what I've actually got rather than all, but the more I dive into it, the more I realise that I'm probably never even going to learn about it because it's just so many cans of worms with it. It must be very difficult for you when you're obviously wanting to like establish and captive breed these animals in the UK hobby when you, it's very hard to find out what you're even getting in half time. Yeah, it's, it's impossible. I I was speaking to someone the other day about peach fruit monitor and I asked them what locality theirs was and they were like, well, I don't know. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I'm going on these different forums and I'm going on these like different pages trying to pick out the odd different stripe. And I think the two localities, there was Wago and Batanta, I think, because mine's the Batanta. The only difference between them is six inches and a slightly different scalation on the neck. So when you're just dealing with pictures, like you're just like, well, I don't know. <laughs> like, how have I? And plus, I'm not 
great versed in it anyway. So, and it's like the mangrove monitor, who is probably my favorite species. I know of four Solomon Island mangroves in the UK, one of which being mine, but that's it. So if I can't get them, then when my girl dies, that's it. Like Solomon Islands. I'm the only person in the UK at the moment blowing my own trumpet, but I don't really care to get regular mangrove monitor eggs consistently planned. Um, like I say, I've had free clutches from her this year, but no one in the UK has done it. They just don't. People get these mangrove monitors, pound them with rats similar to boss, and within two or three years, they're dead, let alone getting them to reproduce because you have to get so close to nature for them to even think about going into fertilogenesis. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and you have to research their natural like ecology to be able to get them to breed. But obviously all I'm doing is just looking at local weather rather than exact pinpoint localities, but yeah, trying to, they can cross localities. And the reality is you might have to like green tree monitors have been, regularly cross same as Aki monitors Aki monitors could have been policed a bit better but when you only have a handful you don't really have a choice are think, they protected where they are or are they quite easy to get hold of no they're to my knowledge there's no protection on mangrove monitors or petro monitors but because um, monitors society's appendix too they obviously need paperwork to cross oceans um and when we left the european union obviously getting anything from mainland europe is now a nightmare so there's more in europe but to get cites you either have to get it from a farm to prove it was bred um to be able to obviously get the cites um paperwork but the reality is most of the world courts are trying to get and then for importers to import a species such as a mangrove monitor we, like my peach roots that three of them came into the uk in June or July, there was only three. And the guy who imported them tried to get 15. He could only get three. And even then he had to wait just over a year. And if a monitor's over a certain length snout to vent, you can't import it. So because the paperwork takes so long, the monitors grow, then all of a sudden that paperwork for that monitor is then irrelevant. So they can't come over here. So yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty hard to get, yeah. So I, th I think that's one of the things that was very apparent to us when we went to the HH conference in, in early this spring, early, when we, that the guy come over from the US to talk about monitors and just how many things have just not been able to breed in captivity yet. And I feel like we're only just scratching the surface, but the sounds of it, we've, we've actually breeding a lot of varanids in captivity. I was going to say, it was amazing how, like, basic their mistakes were. Like, female monitors like to decide where they're going to lay their eggs and they'll do it months before they lay. And then they were like, so when the female was ready to lay eggs, we took it to a different enclosure. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's hard. Like, I had a gravid Aki. So, Aki's a clockwork. My I've got a female. She's had... 10 clutches with me in the last year and a half and every single clutch bar one she's 19 days locked to lay 100% 19 days one day she was 20 so she's 19 days and the 19th day was the day I was due to move and I knew I couldn't move with a gravid female Aki otherwise she's just gonna die because like you say thankfully she decided to be 18 days and laid the day before I moved so it all, all worked well but yeah it's the problem is with especially the wild caught animals like moving my mangrove now she's in a different enclosure and obviously i've had to move her 
she's probably just not going to lay eggs for me now for six months to a year, purely just because she's, she's got the same nest box and the same substrate in the nest box that she had. But she's probably just going to go, nah, this is, what's this? Like, even though she seems fine, she's feeding, she's active, she's healthy. But that small change, big change to her, I've just changed her whole house, but that small change to us as keepers, don't think anything of it. Oh, it's a bigger enclosure. She must be much more happy. But yeah, that will throw her off completely whereas the australian stuff like ackies they are very much get them hot throw lots of food in they'll just breed the indonesian stuff if you don't get cool them if you don't get them wet then dry then reduce the food at certain times they just won't their brain just doesn't tell them to breed so they just don't it sounds like a lot of stuff like seasonal cycling and diet cycling and light cycles and humidity cycling. A lot of that stuff is essential to even getting a lot of the Indonesian monitors right. I feel like that stuff should be taught and should be known to a lot of keepers, even just keeping like a common state really. But because they will go without it and they're so hardy and so dependable that those skills don't really get learned. And then when you step up to this sort of stage... You have to learn them skills from scratch. Yeah, it's it's hard. Like I'm obviously YouTube. I'm not self-taught, but I'm completely self-taught off YouTube and talking to people. I haven't had a mentor as such. But like, I spoke to a guy in America who's breeding mangroves, and I said to him, like, look, I've got a female. So let me start this again. So Aki monitors when they start fertilogenesis, when they cycle, they swell up really big. You can't miss it. They're huge. They balloon for. 24 to 48 hours won't eat won't move they're huge so that's the start of the cycle and then they swell back down to normal size within 10 15 days after the swelling they'll balloon again because they're filled with eggs five or six days after that they lay after they lay they're a bag of bones you can't miss it it's right in front of you my mangrove monitor when she first laid no change no body change no demeanor change no no sign at all the only sign there was is she didn't charge the glass instantly when i opened the door she did eventually but not instantly and i was like that's not like her didn't really think much of it and then she seemed a little bit more food aggressive so it was already in my head maybe maybe because i i cycle them anyway temperature humidity light cycles i was like we're about the right time maybe i had it in the back of my mind she didn't disappear she's always out so she laid overnight i didn't realize that she in my head she was going to disappear for a day or two like ackies and so i was messaging this guy in america saying is this this is this this is this this he's one of the only people to breed and he was just like no you need to learn your animals man you need to learn your animals but i was like that's not really helpful so it's not giving me any advice not helping i'm trying to do it trying to help trying to promote species you're not helping me fine she came back out and her tail base, where they hold a lot of humidity, um, a lot of moisture, sorry, they sunk in a tiny smidge. And I mean a dimple. And I was like, that isn't normally there. So I started digging and I found three eggs. Then the next time she did it, I had a little bit more inkling what to look for. But she didn't get skinny when she laid. She didn't bloat up when she started vitelogenesis. And my mangroves, if I say so myself, in great conditions, she's not overweight. So an overweight animal, you wouldn't notice the bloat because they're overweight. I didn't see any of it. And I haven't for every single clutch, but every single clutch I've pinpointed her to the day just because I know her so well. 
And I spoke to the same guy and said, oh, I've had two clutches from my mangrove now. Like, I've been able to pinpoint the start and the end of Vitilogenesis and this, that, and the other. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're so welcome for all the help that I've given you. And I was like, you didn't, you know, you didn't even help me. Like, people just trying to steal credit and accolades. And then he's posting on social media, like, my success. Going, oh, someone that I mentored in the UK, like, you literally didn't even tell me anything. He just said to me, learn my animals. And then when I told him everything that I'd learned, He's gone, wow, I don't even know my animals that well. Admittedly, he's got a lot more animals than I do. I've only got one. But I was like, man, like, you're just trying to steal all this glory. Like, I'm not doing it for glory. I'm doing it because like, if you keep a monitor lizard, a female monitor lizard, correctly, she will lay eggs because it's just part of their natural ecology. They just lay eggs once or twice a year, depending on the species. Ackies, seven times a year. Mangrove monitors, to my knowledge, was twice a year. I've had three times this year, so don't know what that's all about. But they will lay. My mangroves have never been with a male ever. So they will, if everything's right and you've cycled them correctly to their natural habitat, they will lay. So if you've got a female varanid and it's not laying, something somewhere, your animal could be perfectly happy and healthy, but something somewhere in your care is off. And paint me or not, but that's just the fact of the matter. There's a lot of keepers like that that want to like social media post it everywhere and get all the uh, likes and attention for it. Yeah, it's a, it's a nightmare to be honest. And I I didn't say anything because I'm not that guy, but I just thought like you're a twat, mate. Like you sleep in your own bed and you mm. you deal with that. I'll I'll take my quote unquote success and just keep it to me because I haven't spoken to him since. Like just can't be bothered with people like that, you know. Yeah, fair enough. So what size enclosure have you got the mangrove in then? So she's um so she's two and a half foot total length and she's currently in an eight by three by three, but I'm in the process of building a six by six by six or six by six by four, depending on what wood I can get. Um I'd love to go bigger and I I'll be honest and you guys can probably elaborate on it because I'm sort of at a stage in my keeping career at the moment where I'm thinking less is more and I would like to do the four species I spoke about much better than I'm doing the six species I keep currently. And I also have this opinion that if I have a monetary figure on any of my collection, they're not for me. So like, if you have a dog and someone says, I give you five grand for your dog, you go, no, it's my dog. It's like my kid. But then if you have a bearded dragon and someone goes, I give you five grand for you, but you go, okay, cool. So, but like my mangrove, I wouldn't sell her for a penny. Same as my peach, right? Same as my tree monitors. But like if someone offered me a thousand or two for my Timors, yeah, okay, cool, they're sold. So as horrible as that sounds, and that is the hobby we live in, I don't want that to be my mentality in the hobby. I want my mentality to be like, no, I'm not selling them. They're my babies and my pets. I love them without anthropomorphizing and being like they are dogs because they're not, but I just don't want that monetary figure. So I'm thinking of having a bit of a downsize to be able to have an upsize and be able to give her something like a, 10 by 6 by 6 because I'd be able to if I sold a few different species but at the moment 8 by 3 by 3 but in the process in the next month or two should be in pretty much double the square footage a 10 by 6 by 6 would be insane yeah like don't, don't get me wrong I can't I can't do that how I'm doing it now but I would love to have just for example a pair of mangrove monitors a pair of tree monitors and then like a pair of tristus all in like it's, this is gonna sound really silly but my bearded dragon was coming out for a walk the other day just walking around the reptile room while i was like doing a bit of maintenance and it walked over to the eight by three by three 
and it like my bearded dragon's only maybe a foot if that it's not not even a foot long maybe eight inches only a young one and it looked up at this eight by three by three and I just looked at him and I looked at the eight by three and I thought just imagine you living in there like why can't I give you that and then that's what sort of sparked my maybe I should maybe I'm doing this wrong and maybe I need to I don't think any of my animals are in too small of an enclosure but I also think that's a horrible mindset to have that I'm even thinking about now I want everyone to just be like you know what that's huge and that's massive and like I say I can't do it now but if I did downsize and did change a few things around I'd definitely be able to achieve that yeah and I think that is the future of the hobby anyway to personally yeah I think I think it's hard because I think most reptile keepers myself included are hoarders and you do sort of want to collect all the Pokemon and I'm trying to change that in my own mind and I can't comment on people that do it because I sort of do it but I would like to just sort of have my six main deck party and then just run with that and not have any more and I like not having space because that means I can't buy anything that's not true like I can't buy anything if it's not a mangrove a peach fruit a tree monitor or a tristus I'm not allowed to buy it just purely because it's just taking away from the future I want to achieve in the hobby what would you say your like main goals are for this future of yours? I'd love to be the first person in definitely in the UK or maybe even in Europe to produce mangrove monitors, not for anything else other than the fact that I don't want the species to disappear. And I want to try and relieve the wild demand because there's probably only a handful of true. I think a lot of people like the idea of mangrove and peach roads, but the reality is there's only a handful of people that will actually keep them. But my honest answer would be just so my grandkids can enjoy what I enjoy. That's my, and just sort of spread awareness on how great these animals are and how misunderstood these animals are, regardless of breeding accolades and self-accomplishments is bigger than that. I want, like I say, my grandkids to be able to have a green tree monitor and be like, these animals are amazing. Like, look how cool this bright green, vibrant animal is when they're 50 and my great, great grandkids can admire it like it's great seeing my son and his friends come here and looking at all, all these animals and I want future generations of future kids to do the same thing that's probably my main goal and hopefully up my personal and everyone else's husbandry in the meantime so let's talk a little bit about trying to up everyone else's husbandry i mean obviously this has been a big thing for me for the last two years even starting this channel trying to do this i've experienced a lot of ups and downs with trying to, to get that going what would you say the main challenges you've you faced are in trying to improve husbandry in other areas of, of the hobby i think it's just that idea of being a collector more so when I kept before divorce, it was, you had myself, I, I did this, I'm speaking from personal experience. I'd be like, right, what's the minimal enclosure I can get to get the species that I want because I've got no space. I think a lot of people face that challenge. And I think a lot of people forget what they have and always want what someone else has got. Like I went to my friends the other day and he breeds tree monitors and he's got custom built enclosures for tree monitors. And I was like, oh my God, this is so sick. Like, oh, I'd love to have this. And then he came to mine and then he went, oh my God, this is so sick. I would love to have this. And it made me realize that you spend too much time 
thinking about what you want and what you can have and you live too much in the future that you almost forget what you have and focus on now like I revamped one of my tree monitor enclosures I sort of fell out of love with it and I was like oh it's just boring it's just so I completely redid the whole enclosure and I'm like this is amazing like this is great like why didn't I do this before like all of I don't want to buy any new animals I don't want to do this I just want to watch this enclosure I just want to watch this animal so I think the trying to think too much on breeding plants on future animals on what other people are doing on stuff like that that you you neglect your own collection and or you deliberately minimize your collection so you can get more in your collection just to try and chase status and money on social media because you can go look what i have but then it's in suboptimal conditions so i think that's probably the biggest feat i faced money is obviously a big issue because if all of a sudden you find yourself having 15 monitor lizards and then you've got no money, but then they all need LED and they all need UVBs and then they all need really deep substrate. Like substrate as a general is not cheap. Like I think that also doesn't help. And I say to people like you're not a bad keeper as long as you're willing to change to benefit your captive. And that might be in six months time. But if you know there's something you can do for your animal, but you're not doing it, then you're probably not where you should be in the sense of the hobby. Like I look at some enclosures I'm like, oh, I could do a custom background on that. But I just, I just, and you, you put it off and you put it off. And when you do eventually get to do it, you realize why you are a keeper and you realize why you do love the hobby. So I think stop looking to the future and just focus on now and focus on the animals you have now and actually just try and do the best for the animals that you have now rather than keep dreaming all the time, to be honest. Thank you for the motivational speaker over here. <laughs> yeah thank, thank you for listening to my ted talk <laughs> i think you've got it pretty much bang on spot on like us and dylan said the same once you get into this mindset of upgrading and tweaking the enclosure and or trying this out and advancing to this next step you, you almost like there's this itch that we have as keepers to to upgrade and progress and get to the next species and get this and that you can kind of scratch that itch with the level of care of what you already have I think the same, like, we want to get to a stage where it's, look how well I'm keeping this and not look what I've got. Yeah, I I had that epiphany in 2020, 2021. Like, I've wanted tree monitors since I was seven, saw them in Reptile Magazine. I was like, oh, I've got to make And I managed to get my first one in 2020. And it was a girl. And then I was like, oh, my God, amazing. I've got a girl. Now I need to get a boy. And then I literally the next day, a boy popped up and I brought a boy and I had a pair kept them six eight months separate both healthy great started to breed they started breeding i was like oh my god this is amazing female started to cycle i was like oh my god this is amazing came home one day and the female was locked up with the male which isn't uncommon it's a dominance trait in monitor lizards but then i saw a hemipene they retracted into the female's cloaca i was like oh i've got two boys so everyone i've spoken to is like it's a girl it's a girl it's a girl i had two boys my first thought was literally where am i going to get a girl from and then a girl came up. I won't go into the story here because it's private and it just ended bad, but I didn't get the girl. And then I literally looked back and I went, Paul, what are you doing? Like you've wanted these animals for 20 years and you're just so fixated on it. Like just enjoy them. Like just enjoy these animals. And I was like, oh. so it was a hard lesson learned in the sense of like, what am I doing in my life? Keep chasing the paycheck, keep chasing this. And I don't do it. Anyone who breeds it says so they don't do it for money. It's obviously the incentive, let's be honest. I don't breed animals for money but why else would I breed them? So 
if it, if you're not trying to do it to save a species and blah 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 but everything comes with this monetary tag which i hate personally but it is the reality of it so i don't want to be naive to that sense but i was like what am i doing just enjoy them so i waited two years and i've just brought a baby which i don't know the sex i won't know the sex for a year or so and if it's a boy i don't care i'm just enjoying i've built a waterfall in her enclosure like it looks great like i enjoy interacting with her so that's that for me was the turning point where i went i need to change my ways and just realize actually these animals like it's not my right to have these animals and i need to make sure that they're they're in the best situation that i i physically can provide and not spend all my money on all these projects that I don't need. So if it takes you like another 15, 20 years to actually come across that female, you're okay with it. You'll get there in the end sort of thing. Oh yeah. It's, you can't keep chasing, chasing almost dreams. Cause I'm living the dream right now. Like I've, if seven year old me would walk into this room and just be like, Oh my God, no, I need to remember that and embrace him and just be like, yeah, we, we made it look at how great, like all this stuff is and why not just make it better and make it better and make it better and if one day i can breed great but for now just enjoy what i've got it's very true isn't it you don't really realize how say like 15 year old me if i even thought that i'd have like a room for the snakes behind me and like this jet black iridescent shimmering blue under uv three of them and then 10 babies i think i'd lose my mind but now i'm like yeah that's standard but it's when you get used to things you don't realize how special something you actually have is i said that to my friends because they were over well i've just moved literally been here two weeks um my son he's almost five his my best friend's daughter's almost five and they come here and they play with all the lizards and i said to my friends i was like we all take this for granted because one of your best friends is a weird reptile guy and he has a house filled with reptiles whereas you have to go to a zoo to see some of the stuff that I have. And same as, for example, if one of your friends is a firefighter and you get to see fire trucks, like you, because it's on your doorstep, you forget the majesty of it. So it's very, it's very easy to do and we all do it, but it's important to listen to my TED talk again, but it's important just to like, remember where you are and actually appreciate what you have. Cause if you don't, you do just get stuck in that cycle of just repetitive, like, what's next what's next what's next basically there's the ball python like royal python mentality of just that's what you're in if you just keep thinking what's next what's next what's next rather than enjoying the species just gonna let that sit for a little bit i, I can go <laughs> on more job. about it I can go. <laughs> i'll see you later thanks for listening guys tune in next week <laughs> one thing that i I picked up on when you said about like, oh, if you're not changing the enclosure where it just gets bored and just sat there depressed, so to speak, until next Wednesday when the nose is getting fed. People listening will listen to this and think, there's monitor lizards. Of course that makes sense. You say that about a raw python, all hell breaks loose. It is, uh, no, are they as perceptive and as intelligent as a monitor lizard? No, they're not. Are they as aware enough to realise they're just stuck with not a single natural behaviour to do? Of course they are. It's weird how we'll be like, oh, this is this is okay to, like, try harder with, and then, like, that, yeah, that can sit in a wreck. Obviously, like, us lot, we're not about that, but, I mean, there's an entire subsection hobby that's just not on that page. You get that in people as a general, like, I saw on Facebook that, I think it was Lidl, I can't remember, 
but they're going to start apparently i don't read those articles but you see the clickbait headline that they're going to start selling bugs as feeder for people like bugs you can eat whatever grilled crickets i don't know and all the people in the comments this is disgusting this is disgusting this is disgusting but they eat like we all eat chicken we eat beef we eat lamb so we're, we we do it in the sense of putting they're okay to eat but they're gross and we everyone does it the same like they're all sentient beings they all realize they have an existence and they have a purpose and regardless if it's primitive eat sleep like breed it's still a purpose if you've just got them in a black box 24 7 other than when you're sliding it open to take a picture for instagram that's no existence for anyone so yeah it i agree with you we we do think it's okay you, you speak to monitor people and they go no you need this and you need this and you need this and you need this and then you speak to royal python keepers and they go yeah just stick it in a box it's great so yeah it's i don't know why they have that mentality and it needs to change but yeah it's funny that people were so like, ooh, bugs, we won't eat that. But I mean, they'll eat prawns, and that's just sea bugs, isn't it not? <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's just because it's the sense of the humanity's taken away from it in the sense that they they don't look like prawns. They're just these curly little pink things. And same as chicken doesn't look like a chick, and meat doesn't look like meat, whereas insects look like insects. So people's brains can't perceive the fact that it's food and they still see it as this gross, like disgusting animal. Whereas I agree with you, if you saw a prawn, like you buy the whole prawns and you've got to like dehead them and like pull the shell off yourself, they probably don't sell as well as the frozen, ready, peeled, ready to eat prawns. I don't know how to stop being a reptile podcast, but <laughs> just talking about prawns and <laughs> Um, so obviously you had another species. Was it the was it Timor? Yeah, I've got Timors. I I think I'm gonna move those on. I'm focusing on Tristus, so the black-headed monitor. Um, so the Varanus Tristus, Tristus, or Varanus Tristus orientalis, and the orientalis is the orange head slash freckled monitor, and the Tristus Tristus is the black-headed goanna, black-headed monitor, black-headed tree monitor. Um, they're part of the Audatria family. So they're the same as very close cousins to Aki's, both Australian um, dwarf monitors. But they're the, they're the biggest dwarf monitor that we can have in um, captivity. They can get up to three-ish foot for a big, big male total length. So they're a big beastie monitor, jet black heads, jet black tails. Some of them are all black. Some of them are more orange, but the black tail's consistent. But yeah, they're just... um. It's just like they're um, like they're just like they're on drugs, really. They're just very sporadic, crazy individuals that just have quirky behaviors. So I think they're quite cool. What's their diet like? Are they mainly insectivorous or? Yeah, very much the same as Aki's. Um, a lot of people will feed them rats and mice and chicks because they are that bit bigger. I mean, people feed Aki's that as well. But yeah, they're um, they're still very much insectivorous yeah i don't feed them much all else other than bugs so what is it you've got a male or a female i've got a pair but they're both yeah they're still young so my females um one just over one but she's quite small she was um in a pet shop for six months of her life fed nothing but mealworms so she's a bit of a fussy eater um and then my male is two or three so he's ready to breed, but my female's a bit too small. So in a year or two, 
maybe I might get to breed, but I have got a pair, yeah. Are they, are they, uh, I literally know nothing about the species. Are they fully terrestrial? Are they semi arboreal as well? Are they semi aquatic? So they're, they're semi arboreal, um, subtropical, probably. Um, they are, the problem is with Australia, it's got like four different habitats and they're so widespread that you find them in the multitude of habitats. So there's a hot topic on this. So there's a keeper in the UK called Alan Woods. I'm sure he won't mind me shouting him out. He's got, a huge enclosure with a massive paludarium. Um, and he's got a pair of Tristus in that. And they they swim, not anything like I say a mangrove would, but they do swim and they seem to be thriving. They're breeding for him. So they seem to be thriving in the higher humidity setup. It's all bioactive life plants. Something you'd imagine a tree monitor and not an Aki type, because that's how they're seen as. They're seen as desert guanas, whereas people don't realise that they're subtropical. But mine are kept a bit more arid than his my argument to it is we don't know because all australian monitors have been here for the last 20 30 years captive bred because obviously australia shut their borders for importation so we don't know where the original ones came from we don't know if they came from rainforest forest areas we don't know if they came from quote unquote the outback um so they're only used to what they're born in so if they were born and then put into a higher humidity enclosure they'd probably just be they're hardy so they'll thrive in it and if they're put in a drier enclosure they're hardy so they'll thrive in it so it is quite hard to know how to keep them just purely because you can keep them a magnitude of ways and we don't know where they came from so who knows who's right me and him keep them differently he's had success so I've, I haven't tried to breed, but he says success. So they're clearly happy. They're clearly thriving in that instance or they wouldn't breed. But yeah, they're a subtropical, semi-arboreal, rocky outcrop, tree hollow, highly active. I wouldn't say they're semi-aquatic. They're not like Merton's monitors. They don't, they will be found near water, but I wouldn't have thought they would swim a lot by choice. But it's also a topic up for debate. So they're more of like an all-terrain vehicle sort of thing. Yeah, very much so. I personally, I would say they're a subtropical, semi-arboreal, rocky outcrop is how I keep mine. So sandy soil substrate. Um, there were plants in there, but they've died off. And then like just some hollow cork and some branches. One of mine's got a like a fake background of like rocky slate, like little slate bits that you can squeeze into, almost like you'd keep a Kimberley rock monitor more similar to a Kimberley than a than an Aki, I'd say. So with them then, obviously you're saying that one person's doing it like more humid, you're doing it drier. Are you trying to offer almost like choices of like a dry area than a humid area to see whether they will select for one or the other and try and measure it that way? Uh I haven't, to be honest. I've kept mine more or less how I keep mine. Um, a good indication with monitors, especially younger monitors from Australia, is if they start getting stuck shed around the toes and the tail, then something's not right. Because that's especially for baby Audatria. So I say Audatrius. Audatria is the group of dwarf monitors. So for baby Audatria, they'll lose a toe like instantly, stuck shed, lacerated, this toe's gone. So as long as they're shedding okay, I I personally don't think there's an issue. And mine shed perfectly. So, but my humidity, they're not dry, dry. They probably sit around 60% normally. 
And then I spray them once. I spray all of my animals at least once a week, including my ackies. I spray everything at least once a week. So they get sprayed down quite heavily once a week. Um, if I'm honest, they hate it and they hide and they wait until the enclosure dries out. Um, ambient humidity, obviously don't mind, but wet, I find they don't like. But they also, when they're chilling, they're always up high. So they don't tend to seek refuge on the ground. They'll always sort of resort to a hollow tree um again which would be drier than say a burrow they're not a burrowing species so for me ambient humidity is a lot more important than microclimates there's probably four or five people in the uk keeping tristis but that's about it back in the day in the glory days of reptiles they were everywhere for like 100 pound like everywhere and then no one wanted them so no one bred them and then they disappeared and then they sort of shot back up in value because obviously i've it's, for example, like you'd know the Mexican black king snakes. It's the same cycle. Everyone wanted them. Everyone bred them. Every, no one wanted them. No one bred them. So Tristan said the very same thing. But yeah, it's it's hard because I see Alan's setup and I'm like, oh my God, it's a sick setup. Like, it looks amazing. But I personally wouldn't keep my Tristus like that. But then I'm not bashing him because he's a breeding. So if mine don't breed in two or three years time, then I'll go, okay, well, clearly Alan had it right. I think it's a case of there's more than one way to skin a cat as such. There's more than one way to breed a mono. Well, sometimes, <laughs> depending on the species, but sometimes. <laughs> Say it doesn't really work, does it? <laughs> no, not really. So how much are they now then, since they were back in the day, 100, 100 quid, what are they now? Well, Alan's, I don't know what he's going to sell for, but Alan's, there's a pair on pre-loved at the moment that's £1,500. Um, from a big Varanid breeder. You probably figure out who it is. I don't know if I'm allowed to name names, so I won't. But one of the bigger Varanid breeders in the UK, he's got a pair on pre-love for 1500 I personally think that's too much, and they haven't sold thus forth proving it's too much. Alan's on about selling his babies for between five and £600, I think, but they're not hatched yet, so I don't know. I paid... I brought mine from a really well-known same Ethos pet shop, um my male for 300 and i brought my female from pre-loved with a setup for 400 but that was a couple of years ago but because they're not out there they're sort of what you're willing to pay rather than what they're worth but i hate saying that because it's a life but i would say between 450 and 600 to answer your question to answer your question about naming names, I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I wouldn't know who they were anyway, to be honest, in the UK. <laughs> Have you heard of um, Philip Nice Guy? It rings a bell, but I don't really have a clue now. Yeah, he's, he's just basically the biggest monitor guy. He's importer breeder, but he's he's the only person selling Varanus Tristus at the moment. Oh, fair enough. So when do you feel... You've finally reached a stage where you feel like you've met all your goals and you feel like you're just happy with what you're doing now. If that ever happens, I'll sell everything. Just purely because the day I think I've done it all and know it all, then I don't want to do it anymore. I hope that the day I die, I'm still trying to figure out how to breed monitors. That's a bit of a... He just keeps putting out mic drops. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really into like like philosophy as well. You can probably tell. So it's probably comes through on how I talk just because like, philosophy mindset lifestyle and reptiles are like the biggest things so i can't help it i'm sorry i'll try and dumb it down a little bit <laughs> no it's good i like it i'm into that sort of thing and um a lot of people i don't aren't thinking enough 
I think. Yeah, I know it's it's hard because I feel cursed to have a cursed mind that constantly wanders and constantly questions everything. Um, but then I also feel sorry for people that don't. So it's it's a double edged sword. Hmm. I feel like it's probably a lot easier to get people to think that way with Varanids. You try to get them to think that way with a lot of like maybe common clubrids or something, then it's maybe a harder difficult a more difficult task, shall I say. It's like I put myself out on social media in May this year purely because I saw so many Varanids, namely Bosks, Ackies, Nile monitors, Rudicolis, so the roughneck monitor even mangrove monitors in just such dire situations. Like I'm no expert at all, but I thought I'm friendly. I'm I'm not going to bash people. So I thought if I'm a go-to for advice, then great. So that's why I put myself out there just because you'd be surprised monitors get such a bad stick. Like they don't in the sense of advanced husbandry keepers, but when you go under that layer and you see the rat keepers and they've got, a bosk in a that's four foot long in a 40 gallon that's literally as fat as it is long and you realize like there's a problem so i guess i'm trying to evangelize like monitor lizard husbandry when i'm not the best by any stretch but at least someone is trying enough yeah just because i'm not scared like i one of my tristers passed i had i had four tristers my female passed away um, due to renal failure because she was just massively obese. I brought her massively obese and I thought I could sort of save her. I couldn't. So, but I shared it all. It's really sad, but yeah, people can kill animals with love. Like this animal wasn't, it was neglected. There's no point in saying it wasn't, but it wasn't neglected in the sense of it had everything it needed, but it just had ample food. So people just fed it and fed it and fed it and fed it and fed it to the point where it just got so fat that its organs and body just shut down and it, sadly passed away in, in my hands um and yeah it was horrible so i wanted to share that with everyone to try and just to put it out there really that mistakes happen and you, as long as we learn from them like it's fine you know like as much as it wasn't to my detriment that it passed away it, it's my duty as a keeper to share that to hopefully save generations of monitors from the same fate I think there's such like a disconnect with what a healthy monitor looks like. Yeah, there's like you try and talk to people about what a healthy, good weight monitor lizard is. And instantly people think that it's emaciated. Like it's so skinny. And you try, for example, the croc monitors. A lot of people, when you actually look at wild ones, they're so skinny. Like, Of course they are because they're climbing trees. Like a, a massive fat adult it can't do what it's meant to do um it's difficult because there aren't enough people who have healthy weight monitors putting them on social media so the only ones we see are fat ones yes yeah, i like to think as monitors as the olympians of the reptile world because like they're triathlon athletes like they swim they climb they jump they run they can do it all and a good well good way to tell as a general if your monitor's healthy, is it should have a very obvious pinch of skin completely down its lateral size, its lateral folds. When it's been fed a lot, that tends to dissipate. But when it's just sitting as a general, it should have those obvious lateral folds. And if it doesn't, it's probably too big. And when it walks, it should 
fully be pressed up on all fours like you'd imagine a crocodile walking and its tummy should be nowhere near the ground and it shouldn't sag unless it's just been fed. So if you've got a monitor that's sunk in at the hips, health it's hard to explain, but healthily sunk in at the hips, like almost an hourglass figure that's sunk in at the back, but the tail sticks back out. And then they've got the nice lateral folds and the tummy doesn't sag. Then you know your Varan is doing okay. But I, again, hands up, I've got a trio of Tristus that live together. Um, sorry, Timors that live together. And so the Timor monitors are like... Um, they're like mini Nile monitors. They look just like mini Nile monitors, but similar size to Aki's, semi-arboreal tropical species. The male is a lot more bold than the two females. So when I feed them, he definitely gets all the pies. Like he will clean up and he's put on the pounds. My females look great. My male, he, he's overweight. There's no point lying. He's overweight. Not badly, but he's at no point lying. He's overweight. But it's so easily done. Even an enclosure where they've got a big enough area to swim climbable walls to cork even it's so silly but even having like thin branches just so they have to use different muscles to be able to clamber across that because having great big tree trunks is no different to walking on the floor so you have to have like people say for chameleons different size branches so they can build the strength in their hands monitors need the same so like even silly stuff like that but he still got fat so now he's split out and he's on a diet and because they're such a shy species it's hard because you don't see them. And all of a sudden you see them, you're like, oh, mate, I failed you. I'm sorry. So it's easily done. But as long as you can see it, be accountable for your mistakes, rectify it, don't just hope the problem goes away, then it's fine. But the problem is people, like you say, they think they'll probably see my female and go, your female's too skinny. See your male and go, he looks great. And then carry on. And then all of a sudden the male's past the point of no return. And then all the health effects and detriment will come. And, and or they feed the females more to bring them up to being fat. And yeah, the, the cycle continues. Are you a big note taker? Um, I used to be. Like, <laughs> I took loads of notes on breeding. So I remember. And then my phone randomly decided to wipe everything and it disheartened me. So I haven't done it since. Um, but I'm a bit of a information sponge in the sense that if I listen to something and it's actually beneficial to my life, regardless of what it is, it tends to stay up there. But if I listen to something and I don't really care about it, I wouldn't remember what you said five minutes later. Yeah. I feel like when you first start, you're like taking notes of everything. And me nowadays, I'm like, I record the day it feeds. Uh, maybe it shed, maybe egg lay. Now I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think, I think I need to be, just on the on the harder stuff to breed just to realize how oh, this worked on this date at this time mm. um but i do tend to remember what i'm doing on, i couldn't tell you exactly how much i fed on a certain day but i know within say the last three weeks what i fed who and how, like more or less how much and what i've done scheduling wise but like i remember <laughs> i forgot to label some ackee eggs and I knew they'd be hatching around, let's just say, the 15th of July. So I was checking my incubator, checking my incubator. I thought, I don't know when they're going to hatch because I completely forgot to label them. I went in there and I had like four baby Ackies just like roaming around in like the little containers. And I was like, this is a lovely surprise, but how long have you been here? So it is important not to be lazy 
and be on top of it because mistakes like that can happen. I knew roughly, so I, they were only in there no longer than a day and you keep them in the incubator for a day or so just so that the umbilical like little part can heal and fully absorb like the yolk and stuff. So it wasn't any, but if I forgot myself, I probably would have lost those babies just from the sense of like just being lazy really. But yeah, I've got worse, but I need to, I need to get back on top of it. I think like once you get to a stage where a lot of it becomes intuition, it's quite easy to to not be that that vigorous in the record keeping. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I've found that myself, so I agree. Yeah, Ellie's quite an observant keeper. She's far more observant with behaviour than I am. Like she'll be like, "Oh, I noticed this, this, and this, and this," and I'm like, "What are you on about?" My collection's so much bigger than yours, and I'm not that. I'm not being, but. <laughs> I don't know. I just, every single one has a little personality and if there's something different or, oh, he usually does this and he hasn't done this today, so I'm going to get him up and I'm going to check. I just, it's just one of those things that you do. No, I resonate with that. My Aki's, um, so they were breeding Mac and Sven. Sven's a girl, but just the name he came, she came with, so it stuck. So Mac and Sven, they're in breeding my Aki's. And Mac's at the very top of the enclosure, almost with his head down. And I was like, this isn't normally Mac. Like, what's wrong? And I took him out and he had like a little cut on his foot. So he's obviously been too boisterous and she's just gone. I've had enough of that. But if I didn't know him, um, same as my mangrove, if I didn't know her, I wouldn't have known she was laying eggs. It's the subtle changes. So yeah, I, it's hard because I work seven till six and the monitors are most active 10 till four. <laughs> so it's hard. But yeah, I know each and everyone's personality and, I personally think as a Varanid keeper, as a whole reptile keeper, but I only keep Varanids, but I think it's so important just because they do hide what's wrong. So the slightest little subtle difference can be the difference in saving your animal and or getting eggs or whatever the situation may be. See, it probably comes from the fact that chameleons are my passion and they're notoriously very secretive about anything ill. So literally looking like any little difference could be a massive thing for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't you can't beat that knowing your animal inside and out, in my opinion. It's hard sometimes with the shyer species. That's why you do need to be that little bit more intentive with it. Um, it's like my team was I didn't realise he was getting overweight because they're out when I'm at work. And then when I come home, they're quite shy anyway. So it's easy to fall into that trap. But knowing what they should look like and be like is a staple of becoming a better keeper just so you can pick up on things as soon as possible really it truly does take time to actually dial down your care doesn't it yeah i'm i've been keeping reptiles for 10 properly for 10 years probably eight years because i had the two-year gap but like i i look at where i look at where i am now to where i was and i think wow like i'm doing great but I know that I'm going to look back in five, ten years' time and go, what was I doing with my life? Because you learn so much like every day. And even silly stuff like one of my vents like was blocked up because one of the lizards had knocked a cork tube and it literally pushed over the vent. And all of a sudden, my humidity just started to rise and rise. And you don't realise until it's like too late. And you can have the opposite effect with too much humidity in the sense of bad sheds as well for like Farakis and stuff. So you dial in your enclosure perfectly just amount of humidity just amount of heat this but then if something slightly goes off then all of a sudden all the environment changes and 
even silly stuff like that you just have to pick up on and be so aware of your parameters and your animals just because the silliest thing can happen like a thermostat could break or like I say, it generally did happen to me. They pushed a log and it covered the vent and that was enough just to start to allow the, the humidity to increase. So just, yeah, it's, it's hard, but it's in, what I like about it is it's forever changing and it's forever ongoing. So you can constantly keep like grinding away at it and getting better and better and better with like an indefinite goal. It definitely does give you like a purpose in life, doesn't it? Yeah, it's... Not getting too deep, but it saved me a couple of times, 100%. And that's the thing. I think that it does that for a lot of people. And that's what I think with this um, economic crisis and whatnot, this energy crisis, how many people that generally do just rely on reptile keeping just to give them that purpose are going to potentially go without that now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very sad for it to think about because... The amount of hours I've just lost cleaning glass and picking poo just because you have to do it because they're animals and they rely on you. And then you see their little faces like pop up out of a hole or something. And you're like, oh, this is, it takes you out of your head for 10 minutes. And sometimes that's all you need to, like you say, save yourself. So I do, I feel, so, I feel sorry for a lot of people that are having, as someone who's had to rehome an entire collection due to divorce, I know what those people are going through. And it's, it's yeah, like I say, it almost ended me. So it was, it's horrible. It's hard to go on from there, isn't it? It's like, well, Ooh. yeah, he keeps doing this. He keeps doing this. He keeps just dropping these mics. I'm like, right, how do I uh, move on from that one? <laughs> You're going to regret inviting me on. You're going to be like, oh, what do we do now? It's terrible. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, it is good. It is good that you can have these really deep conversations that, with someone who's actually, you know, clearly you sit there and you think about this a lot. It's kind of a plague to someone when you have to think about it that much. Do you ever have them nights where like you're like, I should go to sleep now, but you're like, actually, you're like there at two AM, you're like, you look in the corner, you're like, I wanna do that and that and that and that. And you're like planning out like when you wanna do this and this and you're like, Why can't I just sleep? Why can't my brain just let me sleep? Yeah, no, I, I had it recently because I just moved and I had to move I've got twenty four varanids currently in my care, including some babies that I've bred. I had to move twenty four varanids, all of their enclosures, um in twenty four hours. So I not exaggerating for three weeks, probably, probably two weeks prior to the move um, every single day, every minute of every day. I was like, right, I need to do this. And I went to B&Q and I brought like 20 buckets and just a shovel. I was shoveling all the substrate into the buckets and then into the back of a van and then emptying the buckets. And all right, I can do that because you can't lift the enclosures because they're just so heavy. Um, some of the enclosures don't even fit through doors. So you need to dismantle and it. Yeah, that was um, that was a lot of stress and my brain didn't stop. And then I got here and I was like, right, I need to rebuild all the enclosures and I need to do this and I need to do that. And I'm I'm laying there at three o'clock and I'm going, I know there's a piece of cork bark outside and Rupert would really like that cork bark. So I'm going to go and get that cork bark and put it in like, he's asleep. Going, what are you doing? I'm like, there you go. You'll like this. Uh, so yeah, I know, I know what you're on about. Just thinking about the amount of times I've done that now, it's very funny. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a good sign of a good keeper, though, isn't it? Because you're prioritizing the welfare of your animals, which is like that. Like, I think to myself sometimes, I'm I'm like, do I get a takeaway or do I spend like thirty quid on a new piece of cork bark? I'm like, new piece of cork bark. And then when you do silly stuff like that, you think to yourself, I'm 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 in too deep, but then also you're in a good place with it. Yeah, some people like party and some people like drink. We like reptiles. Exactly. 
my neighbours definitely think I'm crazy because every single time I come home, I seem to be dragging some kind of branch with me or something I found. Or I'm like out front picking weeds or some, <laughs> but <laughs> I literally cannot leave my house and walk down the road with the dogs without going, oh my God, that branch would look amazing in that enclosure. Yeah, they definitely need another one. I'll change that out. <laughs> I did that when I just um, revamped Mango's enclosure. I, my mum and dad, they've got quite a lot of land that backs onto a woodlands and they've got lots of nice like live moss oak so i'm in their garden like literally cutting their trees down and my mom's like what are you doing i'm like this is gonna look lovely in mango's enclosure <laughs> this great big eight foot and i'm dragging it across the field and my nephew's going uncle paul what are you doing i'm like i'm gonna give it to my lizards and he's only like three and he's like what and i'm like don't worry when you're older i'll show you it's fine <laughs> There's definitely been times where I've been like parked and it's like a really posh walk and I'm the weirdo shoving branches into the back of the car being like, don't mind me. <laughs> it's just for snakes and lizards. They're going to love it. And everyone thinks yeah. even more weird. You're better off not explaining it. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I think we all do it and I wouldn't change it for the world. Like every chance I get, like I work on building sites and it's all stereotypical men. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're going down to Boozer on Friday? I was like, no, nah, probably not. I'm just going to go look for some oak leaves. I'm like, what for? I'm like, well, a bit of enrichment for my lizards. And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's reptile keeping. But that's that thing. It does so much for you. It gives so much purpose in life. And that's just the power of this hobby, what it can actually do for an individual. We always talk on this podcast and all the videos we make about what we can do for these animals, how we can up the welfare. But it is nice to talk about what, the hobby can actually do for the person for once yeah it, like i say it has i don't mind going deep i just didn't know how deep you wanted to go on your podcast because i'm very open about my mental health and i think it's very important but reptiles as a general have honestly saved me a couple of times and i'd come home really down and walk into the reptile room and i was so down that i didn't care and then i'd see poo and i'd be like i need to do it and then i'd clean it and then it takes me out my brain for five minutes and then I go, oh, there's the old, oh, I need to clean this or the water bowl's dirty or whatever the case is. And before you know it, you're cleaning glass and admiring lizards and two hours have passed. And that really bad day you've had doesn't seem so bad all of a sudden just because, and it's like going out into nature. Like we all love it. We all have a calling and affinity to it. But when you see a certain you've got an idea in your head for an enclosure and you're like, right, I need to go and get some branches. It gets you outside and it makes you go into nature where you might see, I don't know, some really nice trees, or you might see a deer or a fox or something. And it just takes you out of your head for 10 minutes. And you probably wouldn't have gone for a walk if you didn't have that reptile in the first place. There's been plenty of times where we've gone like weed walks. We've just gone out for hours and who thought, that could like just collecting weeds could like be so therapeutic. I said this in the last podcast episode we had with the last guest that it's weird when you go out collecting things. Like it seems to like activate some part of your brain that's like yes, gather. <laughs> it does. It does something to you. I know what you mean. I've I've been a bit in, obsessed with um haven't done it yet, but been a bit obsessed with mushrooms and it's the whole idea of being a hunter gatherer, going to collect them and being like ah, oh, I can cook and eat this myself. So yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. So obviously you talk about all these varanids and how much lighting you've got on. How much is this energy crisis? Uh, well, I'll be completely honest. I don't know yet, which is really scary because the last place I rented was all bills included and I had it amazing. And I just paid a set figure for everything and they didn't up my rent. 
because I don't think they quite realized because it was a it was like a massive house converted into flats. So they had like six people living there. So they probably just assumed because they've got so many adults living under one roof. Um, but I'm estimating probably about £500 a month based on what I've got talking to other keepers that I've got similar. So I estimate around £500 a month just for electricity. Yeah, You can calculate it anyway. Yes. Yeah, obviously, I'm an electrician by trade. I've calculated it a few times. But it's hard because sometimes I don't I've I've worked out worst case be five hundred, but I don't have everything on all the time. Some lights come on before others, but I've calculated worst part to be five hundred. But then obviously I I haven't took taken into account the kettle, the oven, the washing machine, the dishwasher. So we don't know exactly. We'll find out literally next month because we've only been here two weeks. But that on top of changing bulbs and substrates and food is probably costing me around a thousand pound a month at the moment <laughs> so yeah it's not good now i understand why you buy buy so many like insects i always wondered like he buys so much that lad doesn't even last me a week <laughs> that doesn't last me a week like if i didn't breed roaches i'd have to buy double what i buy like you see what i buy like mate and I, I like to come down to the shop because one support and two, I like looking at the animal, the animals. Well, I could buy it cheaper online, but I think the whole part is the community and stuff. I know um, there's been a few posts on Facebook about it and I agree. And that's why I like supporting the shops. But yes, yeah, it's, it's an unholy amount of bugs that I buy, like 60, 70 quid a go, <laughs> like a week. And that's not, that's two feeds a week for half of my collection. Like half of that would be my my boss monitor and that be it. Like literally half of what I buy is my boss. Everything else is like Aki's my mangrove doesn't even get a look in just because uh, yeah, it mate, it's ridiculous. Like I can't even fab you can't even fathom like how many bugs well you can, you're like working a shop, but literally it's equivalent. People come in here and they go, It's like having a shop because I'm just viv, 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 viv. So yeah, it's it's unholy how much money I spend on this stuff. And I don't make any money from it. I just do it because I'm crazy. <laughs> Do you know how many bugs I get through? We've got just one bearded dragon, like 10. I get through uh, one tub a fortnight, and I have a tiny cockroach colony, so... Yeah, yeah. I, I wish that that wouldn't feed like one of my animals. Monitor lizards for you, eh? Do it, do, do it for the love, not for the money. Well, this is it. Like, I breed Aki's currently, but I'm going to stop just purely because they're saturated to market at the moment. I've got eggs cooking, but I'm thinking about feeding them off just purely because what's the point in bringing animals into the world that aren't going to find good homes? So I've got six at the moment, three of which are sold, three of which aren't, but I'm not in a rush to sell them. Um, but even though I don't make money, like they cost me probably £15 a week to feed and I keep them for eight weeks. So plus all the electric and the substrate costs and the, all the vivarium costs and feeding the adults for the luxury of doing it. Like, I'm not, I won't sell my adult pair, I'll, ke I'll keep those. But I think I'm just going to stop breeding them just because there is no money and and it's not ethical because Aki's are like £60 at the moment. So it's just ridiculous. So are your setups not bioactive? They're just pure soil and you're just carting that out? And... Um, some of them were, but obviously I've had to uproot them all. My Jobiensis, my peach fruit enclosure is the only one that I said, my dad and my two best friends helped me. I said, look, we have to man this like we're not taking this setup apart like we're just gonna have to lift it and it's heavy thankfully it's only a it's a four by three by two so it's not a huge enclosure um but it's got a substrate dam and it's got 
maybe 10 inches of substrate in it, like completely compacted, done, plants, cork. So it's heavy. Um, but my job is only what head and body six inches. It's tiny. It's not very big. So that thankfully was okay. But I have um, isopods and live plants in them, but they're not fully planted and done. Ackies will just dig them up. I did pick some ferns and some live moss from a mangrove. It lasted four hours. It's literally everywhere now. So it's a bit pointless with stuff like Tristus you'd get away with because they're normally up high. So you can, they don't dig unless they're nesting. They don't dig. So you could get away. And same as the peach root, it doesn't dig that much. Um, and the tree monitors, obviously, they don't dig. So my literally just here is my baby peach root enclosure, my baby Brasinus green tree monitor enclosure. That's fully bioactive um, with like a waterfall and bits and bobs because I know she won't ruin it. But for the most part, it's wasted effort. So I, I make it, I get live plants and stuff, but I just hide them. I don't fully allow them to sustain and you're forever buying new life plants because the monitors destroy them so how often are you doing full cleans on the substrate then depending on the species but the substrate gets churned like turned over and sieved through pretty much once a week once every 10 days and then i'll do i won't do a hundred percent change but i'll do like an 80 percent change six to eight monthly you'd probably have to do it two to three months if you weren't turning it but i turn every inch of the substrate and it, i check the condition if it starts to get like sudden i don't go oh i need to spray them less i go right that's that's that done then chuck it all out and i'll go new the nest boxes they pretty much stay as they are um they'll get changed six to eight monthly and they only get turned and messed around with when i know a monitor's going to lay or, or when I hope that they're going to breed um, because I just leave them alone because I don't want the animal to sort of see me messing around with it. And I just tend to leave it and just let it make sure that it knows it's there. The most important part of this nest box is just making sure it will hold a burrow. You can't let it dry out. Um, if it dries out, obviously, then it's irrelevant. It's just dust. Um, but yeah, probably full, full cleans, six to eight monthly and if, I, if I'm not turning the substrate once a week to once every 10 days, then something's gone wrong. So when you, what are you using? Like, like a topsoil sand mix? Yeah. Where are you putting that excess soil? Because that was the issue that I was having. I was doing that and I was like, what, what do I do with this? <laughs> what do I do with this? Yes. Yeah, again, fortunate that my parents have an acre of land that backs onto a woodlands. So I just, my brother's got a, like a big pickup truck. So we um, get him to come to mine. I fill it up, fill up like a couple of one-ton bags from my little buckets that I've got. Um, and then we just go and tip it at my parents. So I'm quite fortunate in that sense. I started having a little like molehills at the bottom of the garden. I was like, right, I have to stop this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a lot. When you like, my mangrove enclosure was, let me remember this properly. I think she was 20 bags of topsoil and 20 bags of play sand just for the sub i think just for the substrate in her enclosure um it was just my biggest enclosure currently and even then that's only six eight inches of whatever it is um it's deeper in some parts because i sort of sculpt it so like she's got a deep area and then a lot where the nest box is there's hardly any substrate because i don't see the point and then she's got a big water bowl so again where that is i don't see the point but then that's even more volume of substrate because there's two massive footprints on the floor where i don't have any substrate 
and you look in there and you go, well, there's not that much substrate in there, but there is <laughs> like this. Yeah. And then she's got probably is about two foot deep compact behind her nest box, which is about four foot long. So she's probably got a four by three square area of two foot substrate, half of which being in a nest box, half of which just being in the enclosure. Um, but it's a labor of love because she throws it around everywhere and it gets all in the runners and the glass is constantly dirty. And yeah, it's honestly, it's hard, Like, don't get monitors. <laughs> They're just not worth it. <laughs> it's a no from me already. Like getting it all in the runners uh, triggers me to an unbelievable amount. That's why I ended up just switching to liquid seal, partly because I was making mountain hills in the garden. And two, I can't deal with the scratchy runners. Yeah, every single enclosure I have, even the tree monitors, every enclosure I have, because I'm in there turning substrate and it's impossible not to get it in the runners. Um, and even like lifting up water bottles, because every single animal I have, even tree monitors, have a water bottle that's big enough for them to fully submerge in. So even lifting that, you get all the dirt collected on the bottom of it. And when you lift the water bottle out, all the dirt goes everywhere. And yeah, it's just a message. It's a mess. Even just having one's a messy job, but I've got 18. So yeah, it's... Um, this is hard work it sounds like backbreaking work oh like i'm i'm quite fortunate that i'm not particularly weak i'm not strong by any stretch of the imagination but in my old place it was much smaller than this place so i had some five foot off the ground was the bottom of the enclosure and i'd have a nest box and the nest box was probably 80 or 90 kg you've got to lift it out to get it down and you're you've lifting it from five foot off the floor and i'm only like five eight so you're up on like a set of steps and you're lifting it a few times i've wobbled and i've had to call my girlfriend bless her and i'm like you need to take it you need to take it she's like i'm not strong enough i'm not strong enough i'm, like, I'm gonna fall so yes yeah, i'm i've set it up now so I, I i'll still have to lift them but at a, not on a ladder height but yeah it's um and even turning the substrate i brought like a little mini like trenching spade just because I was doing it all by hand and my cuticles and fingers, like I don't really care for stuff like that. I'm a tradesman. I get dirty anyway. But again, my girlfriend was like, you need to stop doing this. I was like, okay, I'll buy a shovel. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard. It's hard work. Top quote. We get the guy on to come talk on about advancing Verana's husbandry. His top quote of the day was don't get Verana's. <laughs> <laughs> all jokes aside, like monitors, once you keep a monitor, like, and you'll keep being a monitor well if it doesn't captivate your heart like you probably see with your salvador eye at work like if a monitor regardless if you want to keep them or not but once you've interacted properly with a happy healthy monitor like when i come to buy bugs and stuff i will sit and watch your crop monitors for like 30 minutes and me and your boss have had multiple 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 conversations on like just them and the husbandry and all bits and bobs just sometimes they're doing nothing and i'm like oh my god just look how amazing this animal is like oh my god it's so cool so if you haven't it's it's it sounds so silly but they'll just be laying there minding their own business you walk past and the eyes just move the face doesn't the head doesn't but the, the pupil moves and it locks eyes with you and you can just see that animal like it's almost squint to be like Am I getting fed? Are you going to try and eat me? Like, what do I need to do here? And the tongue starts slowly flicking and there's just so much you can just tell. Like, it is just pretty much keeping a velociraptor like in a box. Like, that's pretty much what it is. Like, who doesn't want to do that? Well, don't keep him in a box, keeping him in a massive elaborate, elaborate like enclosure. But, you know, it's the same self thing. 
I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I I just say boxes because let's be honest, it's not the wild, but mm. it's um. There's something different. Just monitor lizards as a general. There's something different about them. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think it is just the captivation of dinosaurs because I don't look at. There's a few like tuataras and snapping turtles and bits and bobs where you go, you're a dinosaur and crocodilians. But just when you, well, it's probably because they actually use the eye of a crocodile monitor for the velociraptors in Jurassic Park that I, because there is the exact same thing. So you look at that and you just think of velociraptors. Did not know that. There you go. Fun fact of the day. Mic drop. We're out. <laughs> right. So we've, we've hit like, uh, I don't know how long we've been, but. It's 10 p.m. for us, so we've been going for two hours. So you're starting a podcast. Do you want to let our audience know where they can find you? Yeah, so it's basically just um, Paul's monitors on YouTube or Instagram. Um, Once my internet's back up and going, my plan is to have a podcast every other week for now. Hopefully, once a week. But and I just, I think it'll be hard to have 100% Varanid guests, but the theme will always be around Varanids and trying to push husbandry. And I'd like to talk to 20 Aki keepers on their experiences again, because there's more than one way to <laughs> to breed a monitor. So I want to get people's advice and, and the whole, I, and I don't want to be scared to be on my podcast and say to people like, well, why are you doing it that way? rather than just sort of blowing smoke up people's asses and be like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Um, but I want to make that aware to people before I put them on. So obviously they're not on the spot because that's not what I'm into. But I want to have nice, interesting debates that get people thinking on how they're keeping their animals and to try and better the husbandry of their animals. That's the plan. That's a pretty good pitch. <laughs> Subscribe. I <laughs> <laughs> will make sure the link is in the show notes or in actually in the description on YouTube as well. Yeah, so go check out Paul's monitors and thank you very much for coming on, Paul. No, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening to my TED Talk and um, hopefully we can do a round two at some point. <laughs> TED Talk, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll come on again. Sweet. Appreciate the time. Thank you. And I've, again, I appreciate all the work that I've been watching. It's weird because I've been watching your channel for years and it's going to be cringy, but I don't really care because I told you in person, so I'll tell you over the internet. But I've been watching your channel for years and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I'll leave it at that, but just keep it up. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. I struggle with taking compliments. Yeah, that's why yeah. I didn't do it. You yeah. said that in person. So that's why I didn't want to do it. But yeah, it was kind of a small world moment. Like I obviously walked in one day and I was like, I said, I think I was with my girlfriend at the time. I was like, I know that guy. He's on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cheers.